It's always dangerous when somebody speaks in between and I have two weeks to prepare because you end up with way, way, way too many notes. And I determined as I started this thing this week that I would, I would cut back on the mustard trees and the biscuits a little bit and preach a little more on Jesus' conclusion to the subject. Uh, and I've been editing and cutting and cutting and editing, and uh, I, I, I hope I'm going to succeed at that. It's so easy to get lost in these two parables. Uh, if, if you've ever done any research through different commentaries, you'll see that there's an enormous amount of discussion about what in the world Jesus was talking about here. And uh, it, it's easy to get confused. So but to get you back into the, our context here, uh, and when he had said all these things, his adversaries were ashamed and all the people rejoiced for the glorious things that were done. And I talked two weeks ago about the split that was coming between the people who followed the Lord Jesus and the leadership of the Jerusalem church, which, of course, is going to ultimately end up in his uh, crucifixion uh, in Jerusalem. Now, he's not in Jerusalem right now, as I showed you this map last week. How does that look for you? Good. He's over on the right-hand side in Perea. Uh, he's in the area of Herod Antipas, and there'll be a little statement in our passage. If you have your Bibles open to that passage, you will see there's a statement at the end of the chapter about uh, threatening him uh, or, or warning him of a threat by Herod. Uh, Jesus wasn't particularly concerned about it. Uh, we're, we are currently in this verse 17, Luke chapter 13. We are currently in a synagogue in Perea, and uh, somewhere near Perea at least. And it's east of Jerusalem. He's going to have to cross uh, the Jordan to get over to Jerusalem. He had just healed a crippled woman. And uh, the, he, uh, he was criticized by the leadership of the church for healing this woman on a Sabbath day. And Jesus' response was such a strong rebuke that it caused this division in the congregation. It emboldened his supporters, but it also emboldened his enemies. Uh, further driving a sharp division between these two groups of people. Now, I know at this point in Jesus' career, some must have really wondered what kind of a uh, Messiah this was. He's not meeting their expectations. Uh, I imagine by now, even the disciples were asking the question, what, what's really going on here? What is Jesus planning to do? He seems to be making everybody in the leadership angry. And how is that going to serve in the process of needing all these Jews to throw off Rome and to create a nation state of our own. And they had to, I had to, uh, um, I have to imagine that they were, they were confused and they were concerned. Even, even the disciples, I think, for years, they had all been taught that the Messiah would conquer the Roman Empire and restore Israel to its greatness of a thousand years ago under King David. They expected that Jesus would become a king, but not just a king of Israel. They expected him to become the king of the whole world. They expected God's kingdom to come when the Messiah came. They did not understand there would be a period between the arrival of the Messiah, the crucifixion of the Messiah, and then the coming of the kingdom. And in, in our understanding, well, we know it's been 2,000 years, so we, we don't know how long that period of time is ourselves. Now, the issue of when the kingdom was going to come stays in the back of their minds all the way up until the crucifixion, the resurrection, the days that he spent with them, and finally, that last moment that they had with him on earth, that last time they saw him in person in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. And they asked him then, 
Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So even though you don't hear it voiced very often when you read through the scriptures, this was always on their mind. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. That time when Israel would become a one world government, the whole world under the rule of the the Messiah for a thousand years. The promised millennium all the way back, uh, all the way back to Isaiah's time. Uh, Always, always in the back of their mind. And Jesus' response in Acts is probably as confusing as it is frustrating for them because they don't get it. They don't get it. They, they don't begin to get it until the Holy Spirit is given on Pentecost. And he said unto them in response to their question, will you at this time restore the kingdom? It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. It's not for you to know the answer to that question. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uppermost parts of the earth. That was their battle plan. They were not to start a worldwide kingdom. They were simply to witness to the power, grace, love, and salvation that they found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've seen the movie, The Chosen, you know that a part of this was acted out by Peter when he first realizes who Jesus is. He falls on his knees in the sand and he said, Lord, Lord, we've waited our whole lives for you. We've waited our whole lives for you. And that's true. He, they really expected that when the Messiah came, that this, in fact, would be the beginning of that wonderful time we call the millennium, but it's the millennial reign. Millennium means a thousand years. It means the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Their expectations were far different from what they were experiencing with Jesus. And, and I'm, I'm supposing on my own that the reason you get this parable of the mustard seed and the leaven is because that Jesus was not meeting their expectations. He was, in fact, doing exactly what God had planned. There is no surprises here. And if you go back and, and you carefully read what we already understand in the New Testament, back in the Old Testament, you can see the gaps. You can understand because Isaiah talks about a Messiah that's going to reign for a thousand years, but he also talks about a Messiah who's going to be killed for our transgressions. And you think, now, wait a minute. How, how do you kill the Messiah and then reign for a thousand years? Well, the answer is you kill the Messiah. He's resurrected three days later. He goes, he ascends, he goes to heaven. And for 2000 years, you have a church age or more. And then he comes back and the millennial kingdom. And that's our kind of uh, dispensational timeline. That's the way we see it. We are now currently waiting for the same thing that these Jews were waiting for at the time. In the meantime, Jesus gives them these two parables. One is the parable of the mustard seed, and the other is the parable of the leaven. And he said unto them, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, we we talk about the mystery form of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, that's that, that kingdom that's hidden in your heart, the mystery form of the kingdom, because the king is no longer visible. And he's going to try to describe what the kingdom of God is going to be like in his absence. But he doesn't tell them that. He just says, what is the kingdom of God like? And how shall I resemble it? How would I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed into a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches thereof. So you're immediately finding yourself trying to interpret this parable in the light of millennial prophecy. And 
you, I, anybody studying this, but I particularly can get so bogged down in this that you really lose yourself. Uh, it, it's amazing that if you just pick conservative commentators, you'll find that they can't agree. And there, there's two basic points, two basic uh, interpretations of conservative scholars. And uh, I prefer one, but it really doesn't matter in a way. I, I almost think that both are true. In, in one sense, they, they would like you to say, um, this kingdom growth is a good thing. Well, obviously, it starts small, grows very large. That, that's not bad. Gets many branches, and then you start to wonder, well, is that good? And these birds come and lodge in the air. And one set of commentators will tell you that the branches are good. They represent denominations, and the birds are okay. They don't even talk about what the birds represent. I, I'm of the other school but I, I wouldn't want to get in an argument with anyone about it because in a way, it really doesn't matter. Um, the other school of thought is that this kingdom growth is abnormally large. The kingdom kind of gets out of control and it divides into many branches and birds come and lodge in the branches of it and the birds are bad. So when you look up fowl in the Bible, you'll find that almost every reference, not every one, I mean, there was one that, that fed, was it, uh, was it, uh, hmm, Elijah. Is it Elijah or Elisha? Who, who was it? Yeah, there was a bird that fed him, though, right? That may be the only good, good bird in the Bible. Uh, almost always, they're, they're a negative connotation, and I take the native negative connotation. I I'm not sure that splitting up into branches, I mean, if you're thinking of a one-world government splitting up into branches, you think, well, that's not necessarily good either. But actually, the fact that we split into branches is what's preserved the dignity and the truth of the Bible, because every time a split happened, it was an effort by sincere people to, to create a purer interpretation of the Bible. So... You can, you can interpret this as good or you can interpret it as bad, but I, I, I'm not sure... You're ever going to get commentators to agree on the subject, uh, and I don't think it matters. I, I think you can take either tact. I think the main point is, you know, you are expecting me to come in on a white horse with the armies of heaven and kill all these people and take over the world, and that's not going to happen. It's going to start very small. You know, Isaiah tells us not to be worried about small beginnings. Don't worry about your contribution seeming very small. It's going to start small, but it's going to end up very large. I, I personally see the branches as a way to preserve purity, but not necessarily good. They're ways to divert yourself from the truth. And I also see the birds as bad. And I, I, think, I think it's safe to say when you go to churches today, including myself, there's a lot of strange birds in the church. You know, I mean, you, you, you'll find that when you go to churches, there's a lot of crazy birds out there. And I, I don't think it's all necessarily good. Um, and to me, you know, what matters here is a small beginning ending in an enormous result. And the church is very large. When you add the Catholics and the Pentecostals, and the Protestants together, we represent a very, very large number of people. Uh, now, I think Jesus' point is, I'm not taking over the world today, boys. Don't expect it. I, I think 
they didn't understand it. I mean, he'd, he'd say it over and over and over that I've come to take on to die and to take on the sins of, of, of many, but but they didn't they didn't get it. In time, Jesus is saying the church will have a worldwide influence. A great tree with branches and and some birds, be they good or bad. But I believe he's saying it's going to have so much influence, in fact, that the world will infiltrate it and infect it. And I really think that's what the parable of the leaven is about. Not not everyone agrees with me. Actually, when it comes to commentators, they don't agree with each other. So let's get up verse the next section here. And again, he said unto, well, you know, it was, just, it was just two sentences and now two more sentences. It wasn't like he wanted us to spend weeks trying to analyze this, this great tree or these, these biscuits, if you will. By the way, the word for a measure is a very large word. I know Chuck Missler wants this to be a meal offering, a fellowship offering but it's like 60 pounds of flour if you take the word literally. So whether or not that word had other meanings, I don't know. But again, he said unto them, I will liken the kingdom of God. It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. I left the in out till the whole was leavened. Scholars, again, attempt to understand every detail of this. I'm not sure we should. Someone once said when I was in school, try not to make your parables walk on all fours. Interestingly enough, when Jesus did explain a parable, it seemed like every element of the parable had some specific meaning. And as much as I love to try to figure out what each one is, sometimes it's not possible. But in Bible, yeast is always bad. I don't think there's any time yeast is good. It would never be put in a fellowship offering. Um, so many commentators, when they read this, they see a dark interpretation of this passage, a not necessarily good interpretation. Some see the woman as good preparing a fellowship meal. That's Chuck Missler. Others see her as evil hiding this corruption, this, this leaven in the meal. Now, I'm going to read three commentators quickly uh, because, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on them, but when you read Matthew Henry, a very, very old Church of England guy, sees us speaking of the internal growth of the church. This is Matthew Henry. You expect my kingdom will make its way by external means, by subduing nations and vanquishing armies. But not so, Matthew writes. It shall work like leaven, silently, insensibly and without any force or violence. How is the kingdom spread? We're talking about the mystery form of the kingdom, not the visible kingdom which hasn't come yet, but the mystery form of the kingdom. It goes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, silently. You share your faith with one person and it spreads to that person. It's always very slow. You're trying to get your whole family saved. It's the slowest process in the world. You pray for them for years. And eventually they come around. It's a slow, steady process like yeast working its way through bread. Stephen Cole makes the point, the size of the task proportionate to the smallness of the force is not a hindrance to Jesus' ultimate triumph. Now, isn't that a sentence? What that means is, what he's trying to say is, what you have in your heart in faith 
is more than enough to change the world. See, the size of the force is not going to be a hindrance to the size of the task. You feel like when you get up and share your faith with someone small and incompetent, but the truth is what you are sharing with them is the living word of God, which penetrates even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So this is the exciting point about it. It's like leaven in that sense that you can take 60 pounds of flour and put a little bit of leaven in it and it just actually infests a whole, the whole loaf. Although 60 pounds of flour make a very big loaf. Uh, the point is that the power does not depend on us. The power depends on the Holy Spirit and the message, the truth of the message you're sharing with your neighbors empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, Dr. J. Vernon McGee makes a statement, and he says, as I said at the beginning, actually thinking of him, leaven never represents anything good when used in the Bible. So you can almost never make a good interpretation of it. 98 times it occurs in the Bible, 75 in the Old Testament, 23 in the New Testament, and every time it's bad. And he says this about a group of theologians we call amillennialists. You know, we're we're pre-trib dispensationalists. I am. Uh, the amillennialist does not believe there'll be a millennium. They believe what'll happen is the church is going to grow and grow and grow and get bigger and bigger until it takes over the whole world, and then Jesus is going to return in peace. We don't believe the scriptures teach that, but they do. Now, J. Vernon McGee is writing this sentence to correct them. Many sincere people think of this leaven as the gospel which will spread over the entire world and convert the whole world. They are doomed to disappointment. To McGee, this parable teaches that the inclusion of wrong doctrine into the church will finally lead to total apostasy. And he quotes this from Luke, which we haven't gotten to yet. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. So although the kingdom does, in fact, operate seriously, and although, in fact, uh, the, the kingdom is spread by your sharing the word of God uh, with your neighbor and your loved ones, the fact is, J. Vernon McGee says, the leaven does not represent the gospel. The leaven represents the poison that was included in the church from the very beginning, that there's always been error, there's always been false doctrine, and it will conclude with a time when the church has fallen away. Paul uh, predicts that he prophesies that John speaks of a time when you get to the church of Laodicea where where Jesus is standing on the outside knocking on the door what a, what a pitiful example of what the church has become in our day are we in the Laodicean age now I believe we are we're in a day where Jesus is on the outside knocking on the individual doors and asking individuals to be saved because he's truly not welcome in all the churches in our land well, you have two interpretations, but in a way, both are true. Just like the mountain, both are true. You could take the negative interpretation or the positive interpretation, and in a way, both are true, and it doesn't matter. He's just trying to help you to understand the kingdom, the kingdom hidden in the hearts of men. So I suppose, it's probably blasphemous to say this, I suppose you can take your pick, either one, or perhaps both are true. One is the negative and one is the positive. I don't know. In the mustard tree, the kingdom will start small and grow into a great tree with many branches. That's good. Or the kingdom will start small, grow abnormally large, and will be filled with many crazy birds. Well, that's true, too. Uh, 
In the parable 11, the tiny gospel message will permeate and change the entire world. 60 pounds of flour and a tiny bit of leaven. That's true. That's very true. But the kingdom will also be infected from the start. There'll always be heresy in the church. We'll always fight it. We'll always have to go back to our Bibles. And the only way you're going to protect yourself from the errors that are told from pulpits by people like me and others is you have to go home and read your own Bible and let the Holy Spirit teach you. You can't trust me. You can't trust any. You can trust Paul. You can trust the Bible because God oversaw it. But when you're listening to men, you should go back and check everything they're saying. You don't have to agree with me. Every time, I mean, I've been through this probably four times and changed my mind on it almost every time I went through it. How could you possibly trust me? You know. And then it says he went through the cities and the villages teaching on his way towards Jerusalem. And then one said unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, have you ever wanted to ask that question? How many are actually going to be saved? We, we, we kind of speculate that a lot, don't we? How many are going to be saved? We don't know who asked this question. Could have been a Pharisee. Could have been a citizen. Could have been one of his disciples. We've all wondered and asked this question ourselves. How many of our families will be there or of our nation? You know, I, I remember the first time I ever heard this uh, statement was from George Jackson in Memphis, Tennessee he was my pastor at the time when I was in uh, Mid-America Seminary. And he said, you know what's going to happen at the rapture? It's going to be just like it is here today. A few families are going to be missing. And we're going to say, well, you know, they're out deer hunting and they're working in Oregon and they're here and they're there, just like I started the service. They won't even know. The pastor will be there. The choir leader will be there. The choir will be there. We'll sing our songs, and they won't even know that the rapture's happened. And I was a brand-new Christian, probably two years sitting in a pew. I always sat right there, right where Jenny sat. And I thought, that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard, George. Come on. Give us a break here. We're going to know when the rapture happens. And he said, no, it's gonna, the falling away is going to be so great, we're not even going to know it. And look at Jesus' response to this guy. Well, he didn't get into some philosophical thing. He knows how many people are going to be saved. He knew right down to the number. He knows the name of the last person that's ever going to be saved. But he said, you, you strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. The word, the word there in the Greek is agonize. But it was used of people striving that's why the word strive is there, striving to gain mastery over something. And in the case of uh, the Olympics, if you were a runner, you strove to get mastery over running or over, in my case, your desire to stop running. In order for me to run, I have to fight this incredible urge not to run and I have to strive. And I must say, I don't do that. It's far easier to just sit in a chair. Striving, it's an effort, you see. Our kindred word is agonize. It's also used, the same verb is used of Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane. So now you're starting to see the agony of it, you know. The narrow gate also appears in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, it's a different word than he's going to use here. Uh, the word he uses in Matthew 13 is P-U-L-E-S, pules. And it's the outside gate. It's the outer gate. And in this one, he uses the word thuros, which is the front door of the house. So in both cases, it, it, it represents that door getting in, you know, but one is the outer door and the other is the inner door. 
Matthew tells us, quoting Jesus, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be many which go thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. How many are going to be saved? Few. In John, he used the other door word. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. I'm skipping to verse 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Strive to enter in through Jesus. That's what he's saying. Strive to enter in through the right gate. There is a wrong gate. If everybody's going in there, it's a wrong gate. If it's a big crowd, it's a wrong gate. Enter in at the narrow gate. Now, it's an odd thing to say to someone when they ask how many people will be saved. You, you strive to enter into the right gate. Don't worry about everybody else. Worry about yourself. But it's probably appropriate. Jesus doesn't want us focusing on the guy on either side of us. He wants us to stroke, focus on our, our relationship to ourselves. Now, agonize is an odd word, you know, I, I think grace, grace is pretty easy to obtain. At least I found it so. And I know that we can't walk with the Lord Jesus Christ properly without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live the Christian life without Christ dwelling in our hearts, without the Holy Spirit. But entering in was relatively easy. I was laying on my bed. I was smoking a cigarette and reading Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and he presented the gospel. And I put my cigarette out next to my bed. And I bowed my head and I said, God, is this possibly true? Did you kill your son Jesus Christ for me to make it possible that I could be in heaven with you by simply asking for forgiveness? I had no problem with God to admit that I was a sinner. I, I guess some people do, but I, I would have been hard-pressed standing before God to think of three good things I'd done in my entire 25 years at the time. Uh, I could think of hundreds, if not thousands, of things that I'd done wrong. And it's entirely possible at that time that the Holy Spirit was already pointing out what a sinner I was to me, and I understood it. I understood it. Repentance is a gift from God. And I said to the Lord, the Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I admit that. And I repent of that. And if you killed your son, Jesus Christ, so that I could come to heaven and be with you, please forgive me of my sins and send your son into my heart to save me. That was the easiest thing I ever did. It changed my life completely. It's amazing. Paul writes on this subject. There I am in my bed, a brand new creation. There I am the next day riding down the road, a brand new creation. Oblivious to what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. Completely unaware of the agony ahead. When Jesus said, agonize to enter into the straight gate. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, Paul writing in Philippians, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You know, you put on a show when I was here. Now let's see what you can do on your own. That's what he's saying. But now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
I was told by some teacher somewhere that work out your own salvation is a mining phrase where you dig out what's already in there. I believe that. I couldn't prove it by researching the Greek this week, but I believe it. He wants us to dig down into our heart and see what God has done when we receive Christ as our Savior. Going on, he says, do all things without murmuring and disputings. Christianity gets a little harder right there, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I am the worst whiner and complainer that has ever been born. I'm also passive aggressive, so I hide it well. And I'm a people pleaser. So I have to be around the right people to really start whining properly. But that verse, it speaks to me. You know, while entering into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact relatively easy, it's not hard to say I'm a sinner. At least it wasn't for me. And it's awfully easy to say, come into my life and save me. And I must say at that moment, my life radically changed. I didn't do anything. Walking in that faith, however, walking in obedience, Learning to become faithful, consistent, to discipline myself to the disciplines of Christianity, it's, a, it's tough. It's no fun. It's one thing to lay in my bed, but to follow him, to obey every nudge and whisper of the Holy Spirit in my heart when I'm driving down the road and he says to me, you know that's wrong. And he has said that. I don't know how many times I should have made note of it. You know, that's wrong, Bob. And I go, yeah, I guess it is. You know, whose are those two befores in the back of your truck? Oh, they were left over. Left over? From what? The job. You can't return them? Well, I suppose I could. Then whose are they? They belong to the man that paid for them. To learn to bridle my tongue and my temper to avoid murmuring and disputing, especially with my father-in-law. To be blameless and harmless. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. The world hasn't changed much, has it, in two, in a, in, in 2,000 years, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, except my light oftentimes is a little, little covered up by soot, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain, to follow him and to obey him, to leave my home and follow him, to follow his will for my life and not my own, to set aside those things I love. And in, in the interest of doing what he's called me to do, he saved us for a purpose. To discover that purpose and follow it. It can be agony sometimes. To walk by his leading and to trust in his provision for me, it can be difficult. It's a work. I'm not working to be saved. I'm working out the salvation that he's already wrought in my heart. But it is a work of a different kind, if you will. It is an effort. It can be an agony. You can struggle with this. We are working out what the Holy Spirit has done in our heart. It's not easy. It's not fun. But there's no other option. That's what Jesus said. It's funny that the guy didn't comment on the mountain and he didn't 
comment on the tree. I'm sorry, he didn't comment on the tree and he didn't comment on the, the biscuits. He commented on how many would be in the kingdom. And Jesus said, don't worry about that. Worry about whether you're in the kingdom. And then he closes with this. I, I don't know if it's safe to call this a parable, but I guess it is. Because there's no named person here. or Somebody, I, I don't remember who taught me that if there's no name in it, it's probably a parable. If there is a name in it, you know, Lazarus at the gate, that's not a, a parable. That's a true story. Uh, so Jesus is kind of closing this message for me today with these verses in Luke chapter 13. When once the master of the house has risen up and hath shut the door and you begin to stand outside and you knock at that door. Now in this parable, Jesus is not on the outside. He's on the inside. The kingdom has begun and the gate is shut and we're outside the kingdom tapping on the gate. All right. So that's the picture. We are, we are on the wrong side of the fence when the master rises up. Shut the door and begin to stand without and to knock at the door and saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I don't know where you're from. And then you'll begin to say, we've eaten and drunk in your presence. Thou hast taught in our streets. It's interesting, the comparison, and I meant to do that and I didn't do it. To compare this, this parable with Matthew's parable. Because in Matthew's parable, you remember they taught and they cast out demons and they've done many wonderful works. In this case, they're saying this, this parable is a different parable. He said, we've eaten and drunk in thy presence. Man, we were there when you broke the bread. Man, we, we, we always say prayers before mealtime. You know, we always recognize our food comes from you. Uh, you you've taught in our streets. And he'll say unto them, I'll tell you, I know you not once you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. It's not something you want to hear. Now, Matthew is even plainer than that. Then there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. This is what happens if you don't strive to enter in at the right gate. If you don't go through the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself thrust out of the kingdom. Now, you know, that's not going to, you know, if you were Jewish, you would believe at least. I don't know what Jews today believe, but back in Jesus's day, they believed that just because they were born Jewish, they were saved. That that was enough. They were children of Abraham. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time saying not so. Not enough to be born in a church. You have to be born again in a church. See? You can't just be born into a Christian family and consider yourself saved. You're not. God has no grandchildren. You have to be born again in the church. What a terrible thing to see your family. In the case of these subjects here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of which were perfect people, by the way. If you go back and read their biographies, they lived pretty rugged lives, but they had one thing that we need. They had faith in God. What a thing it will be that day when the kingdom finally does start and you find yourself on the wrong side of the fence and you yourselves thrust out. That's a terrible thing. And then he closes with this verse. 
which actually is, is one of the reasons they were going to kill him when he started preaching three years ago in Nazareth, uh, because he told them that God was going to save Gentiles. Now he's going to tell them that again, and it's not going to win him any friends in the leadership. But it's going to open a lot of eyes. And this is our last verse in Luke. And they shall come from the east, Asia, from the west, Europe, from the north, Russia, and from the south, Africa. They'll come from all over the world. And they'll sit down in the kingdom of God. And you won't be there. You will find yourself thrust out. Father, it's my hope that every single person who hears my voice has had that born-again experience where they said, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin and come into my heart and save me. And let me stand that day in your kingdom and not be thrust out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.